Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Igbo Initiative podcast with Ugochi Onyewu. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Igbo Initiative podcast, where we celebrate Igbo culture by speaking to amazing women in different walks of life who are either Igbo or have a very close tie to the Igbo culture. On this episode of the show, we speak to Chioma Onwanibe, who is a CFO and personal finance guru. Chioma is an accomplished former investment banker who has degrees from two Ivy League schools. She graduated from Princeton University and obtained her MBA from the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Chioma gives us her perspective as an Igbo woman who grew up in the United States, but was strongly influenced by her Igbo heritage and parental upbringing. She talks to us about ways to stand out in the boardroom and in life. Hi, Choma. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is, uh, this is very exciting to have you on the show because <laughs> I know you outside, obviously, as a friend. We've known each other for a long time, but we've never done a formal interview. So this should be fun and interesting. Thanks for joining. No problem. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so just uh, tell the audience, let's get started and just tell the audience a little bit about um, who you are and, and, and what life was like growing up as an Igbo girl, because you grew up in the US, right? So you didn't grow up in Nigeria. Tell us what um, being Igbo meant to you and what the influences of your parents were like. Just talk to us a little bit about your childhood as an Igbo girl growing up in America. Yeah, so actually, I was born in Nigeria, which is what oh. a lot of people don't, <laughs> but um, came here when I was four. So I think for all intents and purposes, I grew up in D.C. So, you know, um, I would consider myself just like any other person from D.C., except my home life was very different from my peers at school. Um, for one, you know, the food was completely different <laughs> for two. Uh, we, we spoke Igbo in the house, or at least my parents did. I would respond in English. And third, I didn't feel the need to go and hang out and have parties because we always had a Nigerian thing going on. So I think we, we I, I grew up with a bit of a separate um, experience from all of my friends at school. You know, and I did have friends. I just didn't spend a whole lot of time with them. There were always Nigerian things going on. Interesting. So Interesting. Yeah. So did you speak Igbo um, before you left Nigeria or did you sort of never learn the language? I, I, I spoke it before I left and I still understand it. I just have such an American accent that it it's it's not worth, worth it for me to try and speak because people <laughs> get very, they have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> Out. So, so, so you mentioned. Yeah, I, go ahead. Go ahead. I tell people that oh, it's sort of like um, you know mo- the one language that most people know that where the intonation matters a lot is Chinese, and that's what that's how I describe it to a lot of my friends. It's like Chinese. Yeah. If you get the intonation wrong, you might think you're saying 
water and you're actually saying something completely yeah, different. It's, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's funny because the word, um, one word with different intonations can mean that four or five different things. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned the food. Um, did you sort of, did your mom pack like Nigerian food for you to take to, lot, to school? Um, what was that like? <laughs> so, so yeah, not not only did I show up to kindergarten with Edishi with my head hair plaited and thread, but you know with all sorts of Nigerian food. Um, I love it. I can't remember when, but I know at some point I basically said, "Please, please, can I just have peanut butter and jelly?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was it was really in an effort to try and fit in. Um, mm. That was part of not understand. And I grew up in DC where, you know, 90% of the class was black. Okay. You know, they looked, they, it's just the mannerisms were different. And, you know, clearly the backgrounds were completely different. Yeah. So it was, it was so hard to blend in because yeah. I didn't know what, why it was so clear that I was different. Right. Um, but I eventually, eventually start to figure it out and you start trying to act like the people around you and eat like the people around you and do your hair like the people around you. Of course, of course, especially at that age, right? It's, it's, it's funny how oh, yes. at this age, we're so proud to stand out. But when you're four or five trying to make friends, you, the last thing you want to do is stand out, right? So you want to be like everyone else. Do you think it was hard growing up with, with that Igbo identity, or do you think it had a, a huge influence on who you are today? I think it had a huge influence, and I'm, I, I wouldn't have changed anything about my childhood. Mm. Um, honestly, you know, I look at a lot of the kids who I graduated high school with, and I went to a public magnet school in D.C., so it was supposed to be the best of the best from D.C., mm. and a lot of either still are in very clerical jobs mm. or are, um, you know, some of them aren't even alive today because of different things that they got involved with. And I think being Nigerian and knowing that, you know, even though, like I said, I looked at them, they, you know, half the class looked like me, even, you know, the white students fit in better than I did. Mm. Um, knowing, knowing that when I got home, my celebration was not going to, um, was, was going to be something that was sponsored by my family, mm-hmm. I think made a huge difference yeah. because when I went parties, it was, it was with my family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in ways it made me a nerd, mm-hmm. which made it much easier to just say, okay, yes, I am not doing that. That is not part of, that is not a choice I'm making and, um, to move forward and stay focused on the books. I mean, the one way that I, actually stood out positively in school was if I did well. Mm-hmm. So it encouraged me to do that. Otherwise, I stood out because of my name or I stood out because I smelled like stockfish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, those are the things you want to forget. And yeah. so you focus on the one thing that, all, that gives you the praise, which mm-hmm. was always when I well in school yeah yeah so you you talked about grades and I know um I know this right we having Igbo parents and coming from an Igbo 
background, uh, Igbo parents, put, uh, Nigerians as a whole, right, put a whole lot of emphasis on grades. So I'm assuming that your grades were, were great and that that was your source to your point of satisfaction and knowing that that was something that you could do and, and shine at. So did your parents, um, how did they, I guess the question is, did they reward good grades and what did they do or say if the grades weren't that great? Was it a, oh no, we don't accept anything less than an A or was it an encouragement? How, what was the approach in your household? I've, I've heard a lot of Igbo families say that if you weren't top in your class, then, you know, your parent, their parents would criticize them and say, was the number, did the top person have two heads or two <laughs> tails? I mean, yeah, all of these, all of these sayings that we've all heard, my parents were a little different. Mm. Um, they, they didn't tell me what they needed me to do. Mm. They told me what the consequences would be of, of going a different path. Mm. So for example, um, you know, I was, as I mentioned, I was at a public school in D.C., and, you know, my dad worked at Howard and my mom worked at Georgetown, and they said, you know, honestly, if you can't be top of your class, then there's no reason for us to have to pay for college for you. You will live at home, and you will go to Georgetown or Howard for free, you know, which to some kids would be, okay, that's fine, but recognizing that by doing extra well, the benefit was my parents, you know, what they were really saying was, we will struggle, work, and make sure that we can afford an education for you wherever you want to mm. go if you know yourself capable. Mm. But if you don't self capable, then we will still insist that you go to college. We just won't pay for it. That's really you have to. That's really, that's interesting. I've never kind of, I've never heard that approach, but I think, you know, while you were I talking. I mean, and, and it was, it, it was, it was, it, I think it, it was unique to my family because, and I, I apologize for cutting you off. No. I think it was unique to my family. As you know, my dad adopted a lot of kids. And so he was committed to send all of them to college. Mm -hmm. And I was no different. So I didn't get different treatment just because I was a biological child. Mm -hmm. It was every single child in the house, you know, he had three biological, you know, we had as many as 10 kids at any point in the t of time in the house. You would go to college. That was mandatory. But where you went depended on how well you did. Mm. And they, were, they made it clear, we will not put out money to send you to college if you, if when it's free, you can't take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. You know, but as you were talking, um, I thought of something, you know, because there are a lot of Igbo children who didn't make it in life. And they, when I say didn't make it in life, maybe were not as successful, right? But they still had the same kind of upbringing from parents that would say the person that, that had A's, does he have two heads or... So there has to, I guess the point I'm trying to make is there has to have been, there had to have been something intrinsically within you that was uh, motivated 
to do well, right? Whatever it was, maybe it was, maybe the message just came across clearer and it impacted you more than it say would have impacted another child in the same position. Or maybe there was just something within you from an early age that said, you know what, I want to try and do the best that I can. Do you think that's the case? What do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think it was all of the factors that came together just well for me. So first of all, the fact that I was very different, like I said, my my high school example, you know, I can say elementary, but throughout school before college, I would have, you know, if there were a, if there were 100 kids in the class, maybe five of them would be Caucasian, the rest would be African American. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that I looked like the majority, but I stood out more than the white students made it so that I tended to be more introverted, more thoughtful, and um, spent a lot more time studying. Mm. You know, if you are that um, kid who, you know, just is just like everyone else and you're similar, and, and I think, uh, you know, sometimes with this generation, they can feel like they just sort of slide right in um, and mix in and there's no difference between them and anybody else. Me, having been born in Nigeria, growing up with a family that was very much um, Nigeria from a cultural perspective, you know, I, the, the one thing that I could focus on, the one thing that I could do well, the one thing that made everyone cheer for me rather, rather than, you know, jeer at me or, or something like that is when, when I did well in grades. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't set out to be top of my class. I set out to do well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fortunately for me, that investment in the work landed me to be on top of my class. Mm-hmm. 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 And obviously being top of your class served you very well. So you uh, went to Princeton for undergrad. Talk to me a little bit about that. So obviously the grades helped a great deal um, and just learning that motivation and hard work early on. What was Princeton like as a college? And I don't mean as a university. I mean your experience of Princeton, right? Be that what was diversity like? What was life on campus like? Did you still have that same um, outlook where you had to focus on grades and, and that same feeling of being different? Or was it a different environment? And I'm interesting to hear what you have to say. Absolutely. So Princeton was the first time where I was not unique. Um, Not that there were other Nigerians. When I was a freshman, there was one Nigerian that was a senior. But just that there were people from all over the world there. So there was nothing that made me um, feel self-conscious or feel different. And so that was the first time in my life that I had to motivate myself to work hard, not because I had, you know, I, I, I was different from others and therefore I had to set myself apart, but just because I wanted to do well. Mm. So um, it, was actually, it was actually very hard because when, you know, when, when the one motivation you have to succeed is gone, which is, wow, I don't fit in, so I better do well. Otherwise, you know, everything I hear from the people at school will be negative. When that one motivation is gone, all of a sudden, 
you know, you have to find something else to latch on. Hmm. And the one thing that I was able to latch on was the fact that my parents had made an investment in me. Hmm. They had sent me to this school. Hmm. And, you know, fortunately for me, just by virtue of, you know, the culture that they instilled in me and so forth, I, I didn't choose, um, you know, the life of, not, not that I didn't go to parties, but I didn't choose the life of partying on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then, you know, and, and, and then just not, and then wondering why I wasn't do, doing well in the classes that I'd missed. Mm-hmm. I had that discipline I'd built of, you know, you come out from your class, the first thing you do is you review the materials and you do your homework and you try to figure out how you prepare for the next day. So I had built that discipline. Mm-hmm. I, I understood the importance of education, mm. and I understood the investment that my parents were making in me, um, despite the fact that it was no longer a situation where I was different or even unique. So you raise an interesting point, and as we sort of talk about your next step after Princeton, um, you mentioned something, having that one thing to latch on to, right? So when you, were, when you were younger, it was the fact that you were different and you wanted to do well, which you still wanted to do at Princeton, but you didn't have the same motivation, but you still found that one thing. And that one thing was, my parents have made this huge investment in me, and I want to do well for them, or, or, for, or obviously for yourself, but that was something that was at the back of your mind and was kind of like a one thing, which is interesting because I, my, my next question is kind of as you transition after Princeton and you start to work, did you still have that, and I call it one thing, obviously it's not one thing, there's several things that motivate us to do well, but there's always that, that, that one thing, and I call it one thing, that you sort of latch onto and say, it's because of this that I want to do well. Would you say that that kind of translated into your future life, your life after Princeton, or was there something else that motivated you to succeed? So I'm asking several questions in one, because I'd like you to tell me about life after Princeton and how, um, how, what life was like after Princeton, and if you had that one thing that still kept you, gave you that drive to succeed. Does that make sense? Exactly. So um, I think the the one thing that um, that Princeton gave me was a sense of confidence in myself. Mm. So there was this idea that there was nothing I could not do. Mm. Right. I mean, I had graduated from one of the top schools in the U.S. There was nothing I could not do. And so even though um, when I first, you know, as, as my entire class was graduating, everyone was interviewing. I didn't even interview because I thought, well, you know, there's nothing I can't do. So I'm going to save the world. I'm going to work for Peace Corps. I'm going to turn the entire world around. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I ended up going to a Peace Corps meeting and everyone advised me get some work experience before you do this now this is after i've graduated this is after everyone else has a job and i'm sitting here thinking wait a minute i had no plan b Mm. um you know that that sense of confidence that sense of there's nothing i can't do um is what i think drove me i actually went to um, my, my first job out of, out of college was with Price Waterhouse. And I actually 
um, a friend of mine who had interviewed with Pricewaterhouse had told me, you know, it's a great company. They really want to work for them. Um, and I went to the office without an appointment, <laughs> with nothing but my resume in hand. And I looked at the board and the t- person at the very top, his name was Woody Britton. And I said, I want to meet with Mr. Woody Britton. That's what I said to the people at the front desk. I love it. Now, you know, <laughs> they, they, they sent some HR woman down who took my resume and sort of shooed me away. But I wasn't deterred. I, I actually called, found his number, called his secretary, got through to him, and basically the CEO for the Washington office was the person I spoke to and told, I want a job at Pricewaterhouse. Wow. I think graduated from a school that told me, you know, you're really smart, but, you know, you must follow the rules or you won't get where you want to go. Mm. And, you know, set expectations lower than what they were set, how they were set at Princeton. Mm. I don't think I would have that first job. I would have been one of those kids who graduated, wished they had interviewed while they were on campus, Mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, spent a few years um, temping for different agencies. Mm. The, the, Mr. Britton was so taken aback by, (laughs) you know, the brazenness of the way I approached my job search. I mean, and I only chose one company. I said, this is the company I'm going to work Mm. for. The way I approached it, you know, that even when he passed my resume on, everyone I interviewed with said, are you, you know, are are you his, you know, babysitter? Like, how do you know? (laughs) How do you know him? How, how are you so connected with this man? Because clearly, this has never happened where right. he passed on resume like this. What did you do that's different from everyone else? Mm. And it was the fact that I asked. I stood up and I asked for the job. Interesting. That's interesting. So what did you do at PwC? How long were you there for? So I, I, I actually loved my role at PwC. It was um, their Office of Government Services in D.C. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I started as a financial analyst mm-hmm. with their um, finance and economics group. And my job was basically to do um, very detailed spreadsheet type analysis, mm-hmm. but was related to um, – things where there wasn't a clear answer within the law from a government perspective. So, for example, um, you know, when, when, a, when a hurricane hit um, Florida, it was one of the biggest hurricanes that had ever hit, and the, and the FEMA laws, Federal Emergency Management Agency, the laws there had basically said, these are the types of things we would cover. Mm. But there was so much damage that hadn't really even even been contemplated by this agency. And so they brought us in to basically take a look and say, well, if we interpret the law this way, what's the people impact and what's the financial impact? Mm. And if we Interpret it that way, what's the people impact and the financial impact? So we're gathering lots and lots of data, and mm-hmm. I'm living on Miami Beach, working, you know, with a, with a great team, and 
you know, basically having all of my expenses paid. I've ne- I could never have dreamed that um, my first job would be quite like this. Now, I'm not sure I would want to do it now because right. it requires a lot of travel. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it wasn't, like I said, I chose Price Waterhouse. It, nothing about my career has been planned. I chose Price Waterhouse just because a friend of mine who interviewed with them came back and said such wonderful things about mm-hmm. them. Not because I knew a whole lot about the company. Mm-hmm. The role I took, it was in, you know, I got to live in a place I'd never been to Miami. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I got to live in a place that I'd never been. And mm-hmm. I just soaked a lot of different things. But I think, you know, what continued to drive me throughout that process was just the upbringing I had, but also the whole fact that I felt like there was nothing I could not do. And even today, I still feel that way. That's amazing. That's, uh, I love that. That's amazing. And it's something I didn't know either. So yeah, thanks for sharing that with the audience. And I, I'm sure there's a motivational speech in there at the end, right, which we'll kind of use to tie it up to, to younger kids. But I, before we get to that point, I do want to ask, how long were you at PwC? And then what came afterwards? So so I was with PwC for four years, and after that, I went and got my MBA from uh, the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And so, so investment banking came after Wharton, correct? Investment banking came after Wharton, and um, I interned with Deutsche Bank um, in New York, and then um, I got a full-time offer with J.P. Morgan Chase um, in both New York and London. Nice, very nice. And and uh, I'm in New York. Worked with them in London. Yes, 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 yes. So you were in New York for how long? Um, for about a year, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then in London for about a year. Okay, that makes sense. So what I wanted to do, because at this point, obviously, I knew you quite well, so I know your personal life a little bit. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about work-life balance, because I know that you were in New York um, with J.P. Morgan Chase doing investment banking, and I'm sure the hours were grueling, right? And then um, you obviously live in Maryland now um, with a family. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that transition and what and what um, having a family life, what impact having a family life has on your on your work life now. Does that make sense? Because I, I do want to talk a little bit about work-life balance and obviously how um, you, you loved working in New York and the lifestyle. The hours, I'm sure, were really long. You'll tell us a little bit about that and whether or not you're, you've been able to sustain that same level of work effort in terms of hours and just in terms of effort as well. Yeah, so I think um, you know, there's, there's a job for every point in life. Exactly. Investment banking was the perfect job for having just graduated from business school, being a little bit more mature even than when I was at Price Waterhouse, and but still single and still childless. Mm-hmm. Um, now, after I got married, I did move to Maryland, and I moved to Maryland without knowing what I was going to be doing. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I moved to Maryland knowing that I had contacts from having worked in D.C. Um, at, you know, the first time after college. Um, you know, and I reached out to those contacts to find my next opportunity, which ended up landing me my next job. But what I found was um, once you are married and have a family, 
the same thing that is exciting and enjoyable and wonderful is stressful, difficult, and hard to maintain. And that's just a fact of life. I mean, children take time, a family takes time, maintaining a home takes time. Mm-hmm. You can't take a car home from work every night at midnight and still, you know, be bubbling and excited about mm-hmm. your job. That isn't an option. Um, and when I started my career, um, what I would do was I would try and eke out time for my family and, you know, maybe sneak out of work um, at five instead of seven or eight. Um, and what I've, what I've learned is the best way to have work-life balance is to be upfront and honest. Mm. So now if, if I'm leaving work and, or not even going into work on a particular day, and it's because my son has a game, it's not because the world is falling apart or, you know, someone's having surgery. It's just because my son has a game. Mm-hmm. I make sure everybody knows that. I am leaving work at 3 p.m. My son has a game. If you need something, we need to discuss it before then, or I will be back online at 8 mm-hmm. or 10, mm-hmm. whenever it might. But what I've, what I've noticed is I have to be flexible with my time. Mm-hmm. I have to be prepared to make sure if there's if there's things that need to be done on that particular day, whether it means getting up at five and getting those things done even before the kids wake up, and then maybe going back and finishing it off um, at 10 p.m. after they've gone back to bed, I need to be flexible and able to do that. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I need to be open and honest and say, this time is untouchable. Mm. Call me, do not email me because I'm not going to respond. This is what I'm going to be focused on, um, and it's going to be my family or myself. Mm-hmm. You know, so sometimes I have to just take time out for myself as well. And I found that um, even though there are people who you'll tell, I am not coming in on Friday because I have this commitment with my family, they'll try and put a meeting on your calendar for Friday. You, you just stand your ground and say, please add a Skype. I am not coming into the office. Mm-hmm. I or say, please move this to Thursday or Monday. I cannot do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of us find it hard to do that because we feel like the best way to be successful is to always be there. Mm-hmm. If someone needs something at a particular time to be able to say, I can be there at that time mm-hmm. for that. And, and you can't do that and be successful in both the home front and the work front. So it sounds to me that you've carved out your own definition of a work-life balance because in some, you know, I for one, I, I, I don't know that I believe in such a thing. <laughs> Is it really called balance? You just do what you can when you can and for as long as you can do it. But it sounds like you've pretty much worked it out. Would you say that's the case that you've achieved um, you found out what the successful formula for a work-life balance is, or is that something that you're constantly always juggling and, and, and you've never, you never quite reach it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think the definition changes over time. You know, right now I don't have infants in the house. You know, the mm-hmm. definition for me when I had 
when I had, uh, you know, kids under one was different than it is now. You know, um, the definition will be different when my kids are in college. The, you know, it, it's different at every point in your career. I think the other key point is having a team that is good. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of people struggle with the whole, you know, hiring and firing. You know, it's, it's usually easier to bring on resources. It's harder to say, wow, I made a bad decision with this resource mm-hmm. and to change that bad decision and make sure that you have a team under you that allows you some flexibility. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you. The definition of work-life balance is different for everyone and it changes over time. So you're in an executive position right now. Um, can you talk to me a little bit, if we kind of move back to um, the workplace and diversity in the workplace and what it means to be um, a woman of color, you know, specifically an Igbo woman, but even a woman of color in the boardroom, what, 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 does that, what is that like? And what are some of the ways that you approach that and find, um, find what works for you? So, you know, I think... Being in the boardroom, you know, when you use that term, it's not as hard. It's not as hard as getting into the boardroom, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? You know, just being in a situation where you have mentors who will help drive you, you know, through your career, and also help, um, you know, put in a good word for you. Um, looking the part, you know. For a particular job, mm-hmm. um, and having something something to add in the meeting are the things that get you into the boardroom. Once you're in the boardroom, as long as you're prepared, um, it's not that hard to be different from everyone else. But the hardest part is actually being on the invite for that meeting mm-hmm. with the CEO mm-hmm. or with the. Um, that's that's the hardest part, um, and. I've, I've, I really feel like it's those three things, having the mentorship, looking the part, and then always making sure you have something to add to the meeting. Now, the, uh, being Nigerian is unique in that, you know, getting invited to the boardroom also means getting the, first means getting the job, right? Mm-hmm. And times when I've sent out my resume or when a headhunter has sent out my resume, mm-hmm. It, and they'll either assume I'm a man, they'll assume I'm Asian, they'll assume a lot of things based on my background and my experiences. Mm-hmm. And the last thing they would ever have assumed is that I am a black African. Mm-hmm. And, and what I found is when you, walk into an, when you walk into a meeting or an interview or something like that and people don't know that about you, it takes you know, you lose a lot of time with people just trying to reset their expectations. Mm. One of the things I've done is, you know, I put little hints on my resume, for example. You know, um, I pledged Alpha Kappa Alpha. Mm. You know, that's a black sorority. Yes. Hint, mm. I'm a black woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then once you look at the name, okay, it, she must also be African. Mm. You know, I... I don't want to waste my time. Mm. I want to know what you're getting, you know, when you first open that door. And then basically having 
knowing my background, knowing what I'm going to look like when you open the door, then we can start having the conversation of what can I add to the conversation. Interesting. So I guess you've probably already answered this question, but maybe you can expand on it. So there may be listeners out there who are maybe high school, maybe in college, didn't go to Princeton or Harvard or any of the Ivy League schools, right? Maybe it's a really good school, but it's not a Princeton. And they don't have that mindset where they believe they can do whatever they set their mind to do. But they're listening to this and they're like, wow, I'd really love to you know, maybe work for Pricewaterhouse, or I'd really love to go into investment banking. They don't have that that start that you had from an Ivy League school. And obviously, it's intrinsic. It's moti- You're intrinsically motivated. It's not just because you went to Princeton that you're successful. But you get where I'm going. What would you tell women who are, or girls, young ladies who are listening to this and really would love to do what you've done, but don't have necessarily um, the same start that you did? Yeah, I, I, I would tell them that the formula is the same no matter where you went to school, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's first getting in the door, and getting in the door requires that you make a case for yourself. Um, you know, most you, you, need to, you need to know what um, a company is looking for. You need to know a little bit about the culture of that company. If, that, if, it's, a, if it's an if it's a culture of engineers, put your GPA on there and make sure that it's going to be something that gets their attention. If it's not going to be something that gets your, their attention, maybe it's not necessarily the place that um, you should be. Or make sure that you connect with people. I've interviewed people who looked, looked at my profile in LinkedIn, knew my background, and when I... And when I did the phone interview with them, the first thing they did was mention something that connected them to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, noticed that you volunteered in El Salvador. I actually, my mom is from El Salvador, mm-hmm. and she knows I've, I've um, used the not-for-profit that you worked for. You know, making that connection and making sure that you that 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 there's something that connects you to the person that you're talking to is not only helpful when you're sitting in an interview but also when you're getting to know a new boss when you're in that boardroom for the first time mm. you know that connection is always is always important and that's why mentorship is so important you don't have to go to a Princeton to get a new, good mentor mm-hmm. you just have able to say, here are the things that make me unique. Let me find someone who has something in common with me, who I respect, that can help push me through my career. You know, and there has to be something in, in it for them. So if they're pushing you up, you need to be shining. You need to be working extra hard so that they can proudly say, this is my mentee. And you can yeah. probably say mentor. That's you know, it point. has to be something that's beneficial on both sides. And, you know, honestly, once, once you've been able to figure out something that makes you special, and that something could be your GPA, it could be the school you went to, it could be just, you know, a connection you have, a person you know, or it could be a volunteer opportunity. That's what a lot of people use these days. Mm-hmm. If you can that job or that school that sets you apart, 
volunteer somewhere that will raise eyebrows and make people interested in you. That's interesting. That's interesting. So we've heard a lot. Obviously, you're very accomplished and prolific. What would you say, what is your approach or what would you say is perhaps a weakness that um, it could be? I know for me, I'm pretty stubborn, even though I'm quiet. So it always surprises people. But for, you know, what is a weakness of yours and how have you overcome it? How have you used it to your advantage or at least overcome it? Does that make sense? Yeah. So one, one weakness that I have is um, basically I don't show stress. So I can be incredibly stressed and it doesn't show. And the reason why I say it's a weakness is because I've been in a lot of situations where people are scurrying and trying to get something done and I'm still sort of speaking slowly, doing things in a sort of methodical way, and it stresses them out. They're like, don't you understand? It's <laughs> <laughs> a very stressful situation and we have to be quick. And... Um, what, I, what, I've, what I've learned over time is that even though I'm not that type of person that gets really agitated, you know, sometimes people need to know that you take something seriously mm-hmm. and, that you, that, and that you care even though it may not show externally. Um, and so I, I will use words. I will say this is incredibly important to me and it is I, – and I am taking this very seriously and will make sure that this gets done. Mm-hmm. So, so my demeanor may not show that I, I'm not running in circles chasing my tail and mm-hmm. I'm not screaming and I'm not doing those things that, mm-hmm. you know, show them that, wow, I am, you know, taking this as like a life or death type situation. At the same time, you know, I've made it clear before I even get started I am taking this just as seriously as you are. Mm. Mm. And, and when I say that, people say, well, you know, not, not showing stress is a weakness. That doesn't make sense. I mean, to, to put it into perspective, when I get stressed, because I'm not able to show it in an outward way, sometimes, you know, my, my eyes will get so stressed out that I, you know, I've lost my vision at times. Wow. Because I, I, can't, I can't bring it out. I internalize it so much. So, you know, so I even found that it helps me. The fact that I've stated those words, mm. that everyone understands that I am taking this as a very serious situation also helps me to calm down. Mm. Right? Interesting. You know, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I and and I think, you know, as I've gotten further forward in my career, now no one is expecting me to sort of run around in circles. <laughs> yeah, I think they'd be even more stressed out, Chom, if you were running around in circles, right? <laughs> exactly. It actually now works to my advantage. Right. The fact that I show stress now works to my advantage. But when I was new to my career, it would it would drive people crazy mm-hmm. that I you know, showing the same level of stress that they were. <laughs> That's interesting. And I just 
capable of doing it. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. I've never thought of it that way. I, when you mentioned it as a weakness, I'm like, how does that work? But it does make sense. It absolutely does. It does. So what do you like to do as a, a hobby? Do you have any favorite books you could put out there for our, our listeners to to you know, get a copy of or listen to. I know you like to listen to audio. Is that correct? I I think you mentioned that once. Yeah, I love to listen to audio books, and I and I have to say that, um, you know, I don't know whether it's that I'm a little um, that I have a bit of attention deficit or what it is, but I can't open a book and sit there and read it. I struggle with, it, but I I love to be read to, mm. you know, which is. Um, <laughs> Which, you know, maybe I should call that a weakness as well. But um, No, it's not. <laughs> I, 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 lo- I love audio books. Um, I read a lot of different types of books. Mm-hmm. And what I like to do is I like, I like to join book clubs because then it takes you out of your comfort zone. Someone will recommend a book that is not something you would have ever even considered mm-hmm. reading. Mm-hmm. And maybe you've heard of it, but it's not something you would have ever even considered. Mm-hmm. And then that forces you to try something completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, you might hate it, but you might also love it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I've learned a lot and I've op- I feel like I've op- opened my horizons just by being forced to read things that weren't my favorite books. Um, you know, to the point where now I'm not sure that I could tell you I have one favorite book. Mm. I have a lot of wonderful memories that I've created from stories that have been read to me through Audible. Interesting. Interesting. So try Audible, people. For those of you that don't like to say, I, I love to read, but I find with time, um, I don't have as much time to sit in a corner and just read a book. So I'll listen to it in the car. So that might be a way of multitasking, driving and listening to, to audio books as well. So this has been great, Choma. I really enjoyed this. I don't know if you have any last uh, minutes, any last words of uh, wisdom for the listeners or if you um, have anything that you'd like to say before we end. Well, so the only thing that I'd like to say is be true to yourself. Um, what, you know, one of the things that always comes up when you're talking to black women is hair, for example. <laughs> you know, and there's ideas about you can't wear braids, you can't, yeah. you know, show natural hair. Oh, you have, you can't, you know, then there's the other side where they say you can't have a perm. You're trying to make yourself look this way or that, mm. you know. Whether it's your hair, your clothes, whether it's the way you speak, whether it's how you act under stress, be true to yourself. Mm. You know, what I've learned is the more I am honest with myself about who I am, how I want to present myself, and what I'm capable of, the more successful I am able to be. Mm. I mean, even to the point where... Um, you know, when I started my most recent job, you know, I made the choice to um, have very straight hair. But then after a point, I decided, you know what, I need a break. <laughs> I chose braids. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, the same way I walked in confidently with the straight hair is the same way I walked in confidently with the braids. Yes. And when you talk about work-life balance, you know, the same way that I walk out if if I have, um, you know, my 
water heater has busted and my entire basement is flooded mm. and I have to immediately to address it is the same way I walk out when my son has a game. Mm. You know, if that's something that's important to me, I make sure that everyone around me knows this is a priority to me and I am going to make this commitment. You know, so I think if you're not true to yourself and if you try to say, well, you know, maybe this doesn't matter. Maybe I could try and look like that person or I could try and, you know, be like this person or I could try and pretend that I have, that I've accomplished something that I haven't and just put it on my resume. You know, there's so yeah. many things that people, that is not true to themselves. Mm. And the more you're true to yourself, the more successful you'll be because all of us have something that makes us special. Yes. And yes. once we find that and once we basically embrace that and once we say, this is who I am, mm. and I, regardless of, you know, the fact that I am not the thinnest or I'm not the whatever the case may be, mm. I am still very, still very capable, everybody else starts to recognize that. Once you recognize it within yourself, then everyone else starts to see what makes you special as well. I love that. That's amazing. I'm, that's <laughs> such a nice way to end this conversation. Thank you so much, Choma, for being on the show. It's been great. Thank you. No problem. And I look forward to the continued success of this podcast. Thanks, Choma. Take care. Oh, that was so much fun. Thanks so much for listening today. Please visit the website for show notes from today's episode with Chioma. The link is www.theebo.com. That's T-H-E-I-G-B-O.com. From the website, you can access links to iTunes where you can provide a rating and hopefully leave a review. You can also access Google Play and Stitcher from the website. Please follow me also on Instagram and Facebook. On Instagram at Ebo Initiative and Facebook, you can find me at The Ebo Initiative. Thanks again, everyone. See you next time. Bye-bye.